0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, summer episode spectacular. How are we doing?
1: I'm doing good.
2: Yeah, it's been uh, a nice summer so far.
0: Yeah. Lots of summery things. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh,
2: what kind of summery things are they? Charlie? It's just a nice
0: change from all those days when we were recording and it was snowing and now it's not snowing and it's yeah, breeze. You
2: actually have warm weather. It was actually like really, help really beautiful
0: today. Wow. It's
2: gorgeous. Didn't you just get back from Idaho?
0: I have just gotten back from Idaho.
2: How was your trip?
0: Idaho is great. There are <laughs> mountains there. And, um,
2: did you do hunting?
0: No. Uh, I was just visiting some friends in the Boise area. It's It's actually a piano pedagogy student at the university of Iowa. He has a PhD in piano pedagogy. Cool. And I went to our church in Williamsburg and, uh, he actually teaches at a classical Christian school in Meridian, Idaho, which is a suburb of Boise. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Nate and Ashley, if you listen to this, uh, you're the best. They are. And the last name is really good too. Filippelli.
1: Ooh, that is a fun one. I
0: don't know if it's like actually whatever accent I was just attempting, but <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> there's a character in a TV show that I may or may not have watched at some point or another whose last name is also Filippelli. But as always, we have some thinklings business to tend to.
2: Books and business. Okay. Who's going first? I'm going first. All right. So I've been reading uh, Two Towers uh, to my children. I've been reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We're on the two towers. We have just wrapped up book three. Uh, if you're wondering, there are six books actually in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I know, six trilogy, huh? Well, there's two books in each one. So uh, that's kind of what's going on there. But um, and the section I want to just highlight really struck me as I was reading to my children. It's when Sar- Saruman speaks. So after the Battle of Helm's Deep. Okay. King Theoden and his entourage with Gandalf come to, um, Orthanc and, uh, Saruman is at Orthonk and he makes these statements and, um, it just made me, it just, what resonated with me, and I brought this out to my children as well, is how truthful, um, wrong can seem. Okay. How deceitful what is, uh, wrong can really be. So I'm going to read through this section here, just a couple of quotes from Saruman and what he says. It's very different from the movie. So if you've read the movie, uh, this at least I thought it was very different. Okay. So uh, Saruman comes out after Wormtongue, Wormtongue comes out, then Saruman comes out and he says, well, it said now with a gentle question, why must you disturb my rest? Will you give me no peace at all by day or night? Its tone was that of a kindly heart aggrieved by injuries undeserved. So even in the rhetorical question that Saruman uses at the very beginning, he's like, I have been offended, I have been injured, I have been damaged by you. And this is done to persuade. And then in his next statement, But come now, said the soft voice, To at least of you I know by name. Gandalf I know too well to have much hope that he seeks help or counsel here. But you, Theoden, lord of the mark of Rohan, are declared by your noble devices, and still more more by the fair countenance of the house of Erol. O worthy son of Thangel, the thrice renowned, why have you not come before and as a friend? Much have I desired to see you, mightiest king of western lands, and especially in these latter years, to save you from the unwise and evil counsels that beset you. Is it too late?" So this this uh, uh, statement that Tolkien presents from Saruman, um, as, you, as, he, as you read through the book, Wormtongue is constantly saying that Saruman is your friend. Now Saruman is here saying, I wanted to befriend you. Why is it that you're now coming to me? And is it too late? Can we be friends still? And it just really struck me how Saruman's, uh, the manner of his speech... Okay, so Tolkien tried to, d- to display this deceitful, lying individual as being very persuasive in the manner of his speech, in the words that he said, using misunderstanding, quote-unquote, okay, to persuade. And in the writing, you kind of wonder, if Theoden really going to believe him? Is he going to agree with Saruman? And eventually he does not, and it goes on for some time here. But um, I just found it very striking, especially just with uh, discussions with um, scoffers, which I would say that Saruman was a scoffer, and how persuasive their speech can be. And I think that Tolkien was seeking to uh, communicate that um, persuasiveness of, and that deceit of evil, uh, through the voice of Saruman, the voice of counsel. Cause that's what the scoffer is. They're teaching and they're the voice of counsel. So I was just very struck by that. And so I thought I'd highlight it in my books in business. I'm
1: done. That's really intriguing. So if you don't mind me jumping in, Proverbs twenty six twenty three says like the glaze covering a clay vessel, are fervent lips with an evil heart so the parallel there is that like a clay vessel is nothing special but you put some fancy glaze on it and it looks nice and so the fervent word there is the idea is it's like it's glowing it's very flatterous like you're flattering the person and so the reason it's so persuasive is they seem sincere Mm -hmm. and i man that i i can fall to that very easily because you know off as a christian and i'm not Perfect here, obviously, but you want to tell the truth. And so if someone else is being very sincere, you're like, oh wow, well, they if you're naive, you're thinking, Oh, well, they must be serious because they wouldn't be talking like this if they weren't. Right. But actually that's the main tactic of deception. Right. To sound sincere, to deceive.
0: Yeah. So <clears throat> there's there's a lot of really good things happening in the two towers. And uh I think I mentioned this a few episodes back. Uh, I was reading through and it just seems I'm trying to like track themes that are going on. And I'd be careful that Tolkien was not allegorizing. He did not have a point he was trying to drive. He's writing myth. It's like a great story for story's sake. So like ultimately you can do whatever you want with that. Like you can say, oh, this means what I think it means because it's a myth. Like it's not, it's not meant to teach you like An empirical truth but anyway the the themes of wizardry and riddles and wisdom come up a whole bunch and one of my favorite Gandalf quotes is in I think it's in this one I have to look for sure but in in reference to Saruman and how he's doing what he does uh, Gandalf says he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom (laughs) which is a sweet quote that's so good and then uh, there's there's another really good Gandalfy wisdom quote, and I think I even said this on the podcast when I was reading it a while back. But Gandalf is talking to Pippin at the end of Book Three, and he's talking about learning from mistakes. And the quote is, "No, the burned hand teaches best. After that, advice about fire goes to the heart." <laughs> and so, like, That's don't good. touch that! Don't touch that! Yeah. It's going to burn you.
2: That was the palantir.
0: Yeah, it was. And so, um, but yeah, a lot of good things and. I would like to commend you, but also fault you that you mentioned this entourage at Orthanc and you didn't even mention Ents, Tim.
1: <laughs> They're all there. They're literally all there. There's a whole bunch of them. This is the giant army behind them. And Aragorn was there and Legolas and, and Pippin the and They Mary. would not
0: have won that battle without the trees, okay?
1: <laughs> the trees fought the entire battle. I just, if you don't okay. know this, Charlie loves Ents.
0: I, I, maybe I'm being just a little hasty in oh my, my <laughs> approach to Tim's discussion. Should not be hasty. <laughs> okay, I have a book. It's actually we're just gonna go. We're just gonna move right on from that. So uh, I have a book. It is the collected poems of W. B. Yeats, which is William Butler Yeats. He's a famous Irish poet. He's a romantic poet, and uh, he he would be a, a pretty famous poet from the 1900 era. And what would characterize him as a romanticist is that he is going to care much, much more about how you feel than how you think. And I actually would say to the expense of reason, he would care much more about what you feel. And that's evident in just the first couple poems that he writes here. And uh, I've been doing a lot of reading about, you know, what is the value of poetry and that there is a worldview implicit in every work of art that whether it's written, it's painted, it's music, whatever it is, a movie, like the two towers, like there's, there is a worldview implicit in those works of art that comes through. It seeps through, but the poets are not necessarily trying to teach you something like a rational thought. They're teaching you a felt thought, which I think it's different when you, when you analyze poetry with a rational eye, you're kind of like doing exactly what the poet didn't want you to do um, and you know of course, the one big breakdown of that idea is the poetry in the Bible because there are literal truths that are being taught so you you can think through that on your own you know maybe we'll have a discussion about that at some point but what i what I noticed here is. <laughs> oh my goodness, just pulling guns. And he just like drew his guns. Like <laughs> Tim and I are like ready. Yeah. so We got thoughts. Let me, let me back up here. Well, so it is Yates, rational. Yeah.
2: The Bible is rational.
0: And emotions can be rational too, as long as they're Correct. according to truth. Yes. So I'm not, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater right. here. But I just think when you, when you approach a secular poet, Oh, your yeah. first your first attempt shouldn't be to just like deconstruct the way they're feeling because what they're saying is not true. Because if you did that, then you wouldn't have any point in any mythology. Like there'd be no point to Greek mythology. because Well, it's not true, so don't read it. Well, there, there actually is a, a really good value in reading the classics. Um, so anyway, so the first two poems in this uh, compilation is The Song of the Happy Shepherd. And then the next one, The Sad Shepherd. So it's like contrasting ideas, but... The, the thought that like seeps through in this first poem is how he really like doesn't think truth is a good thing. So he talks about the woods being dead and over is their antique joy of old, the world on dreaming fed. So the, the world used to feed on dreaming the way you felt this thing. That's kind of abstracted out there. Gray truth is now her painted toy. So the world used to be fueled by the dream, and now it's just this bland, meh truth.
2: Yeah, it's gray.
0: Yeah. And so he's, he's kind of warning people against the truth here. Um, the very last couple of lines, uh, My songs of old earth's dreamy youth, but ah, she dreams not now. Dream thou. The world is not dreaming anymore. You need to dream. And I'm just like, and like, he's like telling someone to dream rather than think.
2: So what's the difference? Is this the difference between like affections and passions?
0: Uh, hold on. Sorry. So <laughs> for far, our poppy is on the brow. Dream, dream for this is also sooth. And the idea is that this is also true. And uh, this is actually a really big idea when you get into, like, if you ever study the inklings, uh, those guys like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Barfield, Williams and, Uh, that whole host of people, they actually thought that you could focus on beauty for beauty's sake and you would arrive at truth. Like the imaginative process in you is a viable way to discern and find what is true. And so there's actually a kernel of truth in Yeats's poem about truth, where he's actually telling you not to pursue truth. Um, I think you can, in a sense, you can I'm finger quoting, you can dream, you can look at things with an imaginative eye. And if you do seek what is beautiful, it will lead you to what is true. Uh, it's, it's another way of pursuing what is, what is true and beautiful and good. Uh, and what's really interesting is then in the next song, Uh, next song, the next poet, poem, where he's talking about the happy farmer, the happy farmer's the dreamer. But then the very next poem in the collection, this guy's trying to find someone to listen to him and he goes to the oceans and the stars and he's crying out for someone to listen and there's no one there. And it's just like, you can feel how he wants something and they really want something to be true. And uh, how even you can read that poem and you can like, wow, that's depressing you're like man i really want there to be something there and so even like a romantic poet who actually has a very low view of truth if you actually think about the poem it actually does drive you to thinking about what is true you want the thing to be true even that he might deny is there i don't know if that makes
1: sense a little bit yeah Please. so
0: it just I, i'm i he's he's a famous poet for a reason and so I'm just trying to walk, walk through his works and try to analyze. I mean, I'm going to be careful that just analyze it with my worldview and just like just tear it to shreds. I do think there, even in his hopeless uh, kind of emotional poetry, at times like that that second poem, which I don't have time to read, but. You read through that, and it does leave you with a longing, which, you know, hey, here's C.S. Lewis over here, and what's his uh, whole big deal? It's like this longing for this thing that he can't find in this earth, and that's, I think, expressed in the Romantic Poets, actually really vividly, and you can look at it with the Christian eye, and you can see it really clearly, but maybe from within, they maybe didn't see it themselves. I don't know.
1: And actually... Uh, I think it's W.E.B. Yates. And it. I think it. I just looked it up to verify it. He Celtic origin. So he used to pronounce the E A with just like, like a long A. So it's Yates.
0: We had a student whose last name was Yates once. Oh, yeah, Michael. He's not a poet.
1: <laughs> no, Michael's so not maybe, a poet.
0: Maybe he is. And he should just email me and give me some good poetry.
1: But M- Mike, write us a cool. poem. Write us a poem and send it in. You can be a poem too. You guys are horrendous. I
0: doubt he <laughs> listens to this. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? You have any... I know you have thoughts on it.
1: Well, I've done some stuff with Hebrew
2: poetry, and I think that the poets, the Hebrew Bible, the poets, uh, what they're seeking to do is to affect the heart. And so how do you do that? It's not supposed to be something that's solely intellectual. In Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, that's where the children of Israel went wrong, is that they sought to make it something that was uh, only intellectual. And so what does poetry do? It, it affects, but it affects through the head. It doesn't affect through the, the tummy. It doesn't affect through the stomach. So that would be the distinction I would make between what Yeats and the Romanticists were trying to do. They recognized how poetry affected and said that's its goal is to affect. But it doesn't affect uh, simply to affect that would be the affecting of the guts okay the passions the base desires of man instead what the hebrew poets are trying to do is affect through the head it's connected to truth logic reason and god
0: and i think we could even say too that i mean you you can affect for affecting's sake but then you're you're not valuing what's true because you can feel things that are not true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And so right. I mean, even a poet like this can make you feel things like hopeless, like nobody's out there listening. Yep. There's nothing there. And you can actually literally feel that mm-hmm. way, but that's not what's true. And that's what's mm-hmm. you, you need. to You should never check your brain when you read anything, even just like a silly poet about a happy shepherd. But I, I think it is, it is interesting to read that and try to think it through. And then even as I read that as a believer who, you know, is not a romantic in, the, in that sense. And um, don't, don't gasp, Tim. <laughs> 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 Did you hear that? Then? <gasps> wow. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not someone who prescribes to romanticism, but I can even uh, feel the way that the poet wanted me to feel. But then to, to balance that with the reason, it's like to order it the right way is, is the difference.
1: It's so funny because in Western Civ two, we talk about the enlightenment tried to go all the way down the road of the intellect only empiricism, only verifiable information, like that sort of thing. And then you, you didn't leave any room for not always proving every single thing you did. And there's this huge pendulum swing, and that's what the romantic movement follows after. And they're just, they're just going for whatever's intuitive or spontaneous or whatnot. They're just basically rejecting a lot of that uh, academic intellectual stuff. So it is interesting, like, the, the, the teeter-totter of sorts between, like, having thoughts and intellect and having these feeling experiences and how you balance them and work with them. And it, it does seem like it seems to go one side or the other. Uh, Okay. So my book actually would tie a little bit into that. And so I'm, it's really busy this summer. I'm prepping a new class this fall. I've not taught before and I'm converting one of my classes into a different format. So I'm just going to bring a recommendation Uh, in apologetics. I'm trying to read various books and uh, I kind of think these are interesting, but I'm going to recommend to you a book by Francis Schaefer. He's an apologist from yesteryear who has some intriguing things to say. You're not going to agree with everything he says, but he says some intriguing things. And this book is called, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Um, the, the edition that I have is the 25th anniversary edition. And the reason I'm pointing that out is Schaefer in this book, what he does is he goes back to Rome and then he walks through history in this like flyover method where he hits broad. He, he really paints with a broad brush, which that's part of the critique of the book is he oversimplifies. And, uh, part of his popularity was probably his look and his, his, uh, ministry of having these, uh, commune or these like, uh, retreat places where people with intellectual questions could go and live and whatnot. <clears throat> I'm telling you the ding on your phone, Charlie, to mind it's on your my phone. phone. It's his computer. Oh, it's his computer. It's, yeah, oh, okay. Because I can't
0: mute. There's probably some you way that can. I can mute notifications but I just don't want to play with it. Continue. (laughs) So Francis Safer simplified things.
1: Yep. So he simplified things probably too much in some cases, but uh, it's a really intriguing book for a couple of reasons. So if you, if you read critiques of it, people say, yeah, he overstated things and it's not a good guide. and, And I would agree with that, but he has a really intriguing way of communicating. And if you don't know anything about, Um, The History of Ideas. This is an interesting book to have him just explain stuff to you. And he's quoting all kinds of people. So I think it's kind of fascinating. So I would recommend it as one of those books for like exposure's sake. He's going to talk about things you may have never heard of. So if you haven't heard of like the stuff we talked about just a moment ago, romanticism, intellectualism and all that, this is all coming up in his book. He has one chapter where he talks about once meaning is gone and there's no transcendent reality, Uh, the drug culture comes up because drugs are an avenue to transcendent experiences and people don't have those anymore. And so that's part of what fuels drug culture later. Um, It's a really fascinating book, just looking at Western thought and how it's changed in the last 2000 years. Um, I thought it was intriguing. And so I would put it at like a five or a six, I don't know, probably five because if it's got some issues with it. But if you're looking for something a little a little more philosophical or just really intriguing, like overview of history from an ideas perspective. It's a pretty fun place to start. I am uh, doing a little devotional today in Isaiah
2: chapter one. That's right. That's my segue. (laughs) And, um, it actually fits within the idea of all three of the books and the books in business today, so it's kind of neat how that has kind of come together. But Trees, a,
0: poetry, and apologetics. I can not talk about
2: cherries. I'm going to start calling you bergalad. Bergalad? There's that one tree that's like the hasty
0: and. <laughs> oh!
1: Gonna, you're gonna make hey, him the hasty let's end? not forget that
0: tree beard gets hasty too so Ooh. it's not bad if well it's they in the all right, get place.
2: hasty when they start if you really to wanted to
0: get me by calling me a tree you'd call me an ash tree because like george mcdonald ash yeah. trees are bad news bears
2: okay so isaiah chapter one <laughs> bad news trees my bad. verse 10 isaiah 1 verse 10 isaiah writes hear the word of the lord you rulers of sodom give ear to the law of our god you people of gomorrah so Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously well-known Old Testament themes. And here the, ch- the leaders, uh, the rulers, and the people are both likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. So they are, they are wicked. We'll just leave it at wicked. Verse 11 then states, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? So we have a rhetorical question. And uh, Isaiah asks, and, and it's God speaking here, Why, why are you sacrificing? Now, of course, the obvious answer there is, well, God, you told us to sacrifice. So we're sacrificing because that's what we're supposed to do. But what does the Lord say? So I'm going to start back at verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. So, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. This is a fascinating concept. You see, just because you feel religious doesn't mean that you are religious. Okay. Um, Genuine religion is connected to truth. In fact, God, I would contend, rejects most of the quote unquote worship. Which his creatures offer. Here we have the children of Israel, and they are going through the acts of worship. They are sacrificing to the Lord. And what does God say? Why are you doing this? I don't want it. Now, verse 12, he continues. This is Isaiah 1, verse 12. When you come to appear before me, Who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Okay, now as you think through Old Testament law, which I'm guessing we're not really familiar with, but the children of Israel had to go to Israel on three pilgrimage festivals. So they're going to Israel because God commanded it. So what are they doing? They are doing what God commanded. But what does God do here in verse 12? He uses this rhetorical question. And he's like, when you come to appear before me, Who has required this from your hand? Well, obviously they would say, well, God, you've required it. (laughs) That's why we're doing it. And then what does God say in verse 13 in response? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Okay, so let's think of of a Christian correspondence you know what? Quit coming to church. I'm sick of your sin and your wickedness. Get out of here. You see, we come to God and we think, oh, I just come just as you are to worship. Okay. Maybe God doesn't want you to come just as you are. Maybe what God wants you to do is to come broken and humble, and repentant. In fact, if you don't come broken, and humble, and repentant, he doesn't want you. He doesn't want you singing. He doesn't want you sacrificing. You cannot just come to God the way that you want. You need to come to God the way he requires. So the text continues here in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15. Oh, by the way, so you do need to go to church. Okay. But you need to go to church the right way. All right. So repent and go to church to be refreshed, desiring to learn not to put on some kind of a facade or to go through your motions of worship or whatever it is. Okay. God does not take delight in those things. He takes delight in uh, the broken and the repentant heart that's coming to learn about him and to fellowship with him and with his Uh, in with the body of Christ. So now back to Isaiah chapter one, verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I mean, think about this. They're raising up their hands in prayer to God. And what does God say? Stop. I'm not listening to your prayers. I will not hear. And then he says, your hands are full of blood. Your iniquity, your sin is what's separated us. But see, then it doesn't end there. God gives the, re- the answer. He gives the solution. I'm going to go through 16 and 17. You have a series of nine imperatives here. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Clean put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the repressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widows. There's nine commands there. And they build upon each other. I'm not going to go through that. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. You see, God is the one that's provided the uh, solution to the sin problem. What is it um, that is required of us is to acknowledge, you know what, I am a sinner. I am broken. I cannot... Uh, do it. And so what do I need to do? I need to repent and fall upon the mercy of God. God, you are the one that saves. You are the one that delivers. And I come broken before you with that heart attitude. What does God then desire? The sacrifice, the presence, the communion. And I would encourage you as you go to camp as you go to church, as you serve in VBS or whatever church ministry your church might be doing, I would encourage you to to do it with a pure heart, with a holy heart before a holy God.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.